This morning we're going to pick up where we left off last week in our study through Paul's letter to the Romans. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 1. If you're here for the first time this morning, just so you know what we do on Sunday mornings in this gathering, we typically, we all always, uh, study through books of the Bible. Um, just straight through for the school year. Um, usually in the fall, spring, it's New Testament. If you're ever here in the summer, it's Old Testament. And this year, it's the book of Romans. And I, I, I won't give you the extended quote that I gave the very first week, but I'll just give you part of it again, just to remind you that Martin Luther said about the book of Romans, he said, it is impossible to read or meditate on this letter too much or too well. And he said, it is well worth the Christian's while not only to memorize it word for word, and I commend you to that task if you want to, but also to occupy himself with it daily as though it were the daily bread of the soul. Each and every Christian should make this letter the habitual study and constant ob- habitual and constant object of his study. And that's what I want to do this, this school year. So we'll work our way straight through it so that you know that wherever we leave off this week, that's where we're going to pick up next week. Um, and on Wednesday nights, we are making our way this school year through a study through all the parables of the Lord Jesus. Um, and this coming Wednesday, we're going to be on the parable of the sower, the parable of the sower. I encourage you to read that ahead of time. Uh, that's found in three places, three of the four gospels, Matthew chapter 13, Mark chapter four and Luke chapter eight. You might read all, all three of them to see how they compare. We're going to focus on Matthew, Matthew's account of that. But for today we're in Romans and I try to put the passage we're going to study in the group me ahead of time so that you can read it for yourself. I know I'm a broken record on this, but if you have a chance to read it, Ahead of time, before you even get here, read through it, think through it, pray through it yourself, come to your own conclusions about it. You'll get that much more out of it when you come uh, in here. And not just in here, but like when we go to big church, when we go to the main service. uh, Pastor Brian does the same thing. On Sunday mornings, he's preaching through the Gospel of John. On Sunday evenings, he's preaching through Genesis, the Old Testament book of Genesis. And so... Wherever he left off, he's going to pick back up. So you can always know generally what you might read in John uh, before you come. And I really, really encourage you, if you don't already, to come on on Sunday nights at 6. Sunday nights just have a different feel uh, to them than the Sunday morning service, but it's, 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 it's sweet, it's good, and I'm telling you, the study through Genesis is amazing. So um, be here for that, 6 o'clock. But anyway... Romans 1, if you have found that in your Bible, let's read our passage for today, which will be verse 18, all the way to the end of the chapter. Paul writes, for, and and by the way, that word for shows you that what he's saying here is connected to what he just said right before this, and we'll point that out. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God 
or give thanks to him. But they, they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Let's pray. Lord, this is, this is not an easy word. It's a, it is, it is, it, it's a hard word, but we, we still acknowledge that this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And, and we ask that even in this hard word, you would give us, especially in this hard word, eyes to see the truth and minds to understand it clearly and hearts to, to receive it, embrace it even, wills to obey and heed what it, 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 it pushes us and admonishes us to, to do, and would you give us all ears to hear and please give me the help that I need to teach. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, often there's a, there's a logical flow uh, to, to passages like, like this one where if we're going to lay out how we, what we're going to see in it, like it, it'll, it'll, they'll just be like chunks of verses. Like you'll say in, in verse this to this, we see that. And then in verse this to this, we see that. Um, this passage is not quite like that. There is a logical flow to, to what he said here. But, um, and there's three different emphases that I want us to see in it. But you, you, don't, you see each one, he, he weaves all the way through the whole passage. And so uh, I'll tell you what the three emphases are, but they're not going to be in nice, neat little verse chunks, the whole thing. All right? So if you're taking, uh, if you're taking notes, 
Uh, here's what I believe are the three main emphases in this passage. First, and perhaps most strongly, um, he's going to emphasize the justice of God's wrath. The justice of God's wrath. We'll see that woven through the entire passage. Okay, The justice of God's wrath. He opens this passage saying, the wrath of God is revealed, and he carefully defends the justice, the righteousness, the rightness, the moral rightness of God's wrath being poured out. And then in the two other points, we're going to see how Paul describes the effects of that wrath being poured out. And so the second truth we're going to see is the deceitfulness of our sin. The deceitfulness of our sin. A consequence, he's going to show all through this passage, a consequence of God's wrath being revealed in this world is, is that the longer we walk in a sin, sinful and wayward way, um, it does something to us, and it creates in us a stronger moral inability to see our sin for what it is. All right? So the deceitfulness of our sin, and thirdly, we're going to see the devastation of our sin. This is the most sobering aspect of this passage, the devastation of our sin. Paul spends a good deal of space setting that forth. Okay, that's what I'd like us to see. I'm going to say just a bit, because there's we read it. There's not a lot of hope in the passage we just read. It's not a feel-good, there's not a ray of sunshine anywhere in that passage we just read. But if there is, is a positive that we can take away from it, I think it's seen in how what we just read is connected to what we just saw last week. Okay? And let me just say a, a word about that, how this passage connects to what he said in verses 16 and 17. Um, so does this long passage about the wrath of God, does it have anything to do with what Paul said in verses 16 and 17 that we saw last week? Remember I said in chapter 1, 16 and 17, that's like Paul's thesis statement for the whole rest of the letter. Think about the introduction of this letter. In the introduction of the letter, Paul has already told them right off the bat in verse 1 that he was, he as an apostle was set apart for the gospel of God. His life, his life now was about the, was totally set aside to be a, a believer and follower and preacher of the gospel of God. And he said in, in, uh, in verse uh, 2 that this gospel is promised beforehand. He said in verse 3, this gospel is concerning his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the verses that follow, he's going to say, talk about how the Lord Jesus came and lived and died and rose again for the salvation of sinners. That's what the gospel is, and he says in verse 16, the first thing he says in verse 16 is, I am not ashamed of the gospel, that gospel that about, about, about Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed of it. He had just said in verse 15, I'm eager to preach that gospel to you who are in Rome. I'm eager to preach it. He, he says the flip side of that in verse 16. I'm, verse 15 is, I'm eager. Verse 16 is, I'm not ashamed. And then when he, as soon as he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he gives three reasons that he's not. Three reasons that he is eager. Three reasons that he's not ashamed to preach the gospel. We saw two of those last week. The first one is, in verse 16, he's not ashamed because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So he's saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is not up to me as a as a sharer as a teller of the gospel it is not up to me to convince anybody like the gospel in other words 
when I share the gospel, that, that gospel message that comes out of my mouth, that gospel message has the very power of God in it and behind it. Has nothing to do with me. Has everything to do with the message. The power of God that can that has within it the power to save even the most hardened and convinced atheist. Okay? So I don't have to be ashamed of the gospel because the gospel can take care of itself. That's reason number one. Reason number two that we saw last week was in verse 17. I don't need to be ashamed of the gospel because in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God. He's not, in other words, he's not ashamed of it because the gospel's good news. It is good news of sinners who repent and believe. Sinners being freely given the righteousness of God himself. Earned for us by Christ. So that me, as a guilty sinner, I can actually stand freely, at least to me, freely forgiven before God. Like, we shouldn't be ashamed to share that kind of news with somebody. Okay? But then today, in our passage, he spends an extended amount of time giving a third reason that he's not ashamed of the gospel. And that third reason is this. He's not ashamed of the gospel because the wrath of God is being revealed in the world. The wrath of God is being revealed in the world, and people desperately need Jesus, whether they realize it or not. Okay? We ought to have, we ought to have these kinds of reasons floating around in our, in our minds when we think about sharing the gospel. That, that God, God has only tasked us with sharing the message, with telling the message, with communicating that. That's it, because the message has His power in it to, to change a sinner's heart. And it's good news to tell. It's good news to tell that the very righteousness of God can be freely granted to a sinner who repents and believe, believe a sinner who otherwise is under the just and terrifying wrath of God apart from the gospel. That's His point. So that's how our passage today continues the thought of what Paul has already said. And, and let's not kid ourselves, the gospel begins with the bad news. Uh, Romans begins with the bad news. And it begins, it begins here, and it's going to be bad news all the way until chapter 3. Chapter 1 is going to be on Gentiles, who are sinners. Chapter 2 is going to be about Jews, who, lest you think you Jew are any better, you too are a sinner culminating in chapter 3, verse 23, that, hey, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? So he begins with the Gentiles, in, and that'd be us, <laughs> uh, in chapter 1, and he begins by defending the justice of God in revealing his wrath against sin even now. So think with me first about that, the justice of God's wrath. Paul opens in verse 18 with the clear assertion that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And just an interesting tidbit, I don't want to get too far in the weeds, that in, in Greek that he wrote that in, uh, the word order in a sentence didn't matter as much. It does for us. The man hit the ball. It, it means something different than the ball hit the man, right? But in Greek, it doesn't matter the, the word order as much, and so... Uh, what they would do, the words that they want to emphasize, they would shove to the beginning of the sentence. So the, the first words of the sentence are often the thing that they want to emphasize. And, and in verse 18, the words, from heaven, from heaven, it is like that. 
the wrath of God from heaven is being emphasized, which seems to emphasize what he's about to talk about is the active nature of this wrath of God being revealed. That what he's about to describe is not just natural consequences to bad choices, right? He's going to talk about these are judgments against sin from heaven, from a holy God. And Paul's point here is not simply to to declare it as a fact, though it is, but to demonstrate the justice and the righteousness and the rightness of God in it. Nobody is going to be able to accuse God of wrong. And like I said, all three of these points that we're going to see is, is, are in many ways woven through this whole passage and not confined to just a few verses in it. And as you see him flesh out this point in the passage, you see him highlight two realities that, justi- that, that justify God in his wrath. Uh, in the world. And those two realities that he brings to the foreground are these. One, he, he's going to talk about the worth of God's glory and praise. The worth of God's glory and praise. And number two, the willful rebellion of man. All right? God is just in revealing his wrath because one, he is worth his glory and praise. But two, we are willfully rebellious. That's what, that's what his point is. So let's, let's think first that Paul is clear that God is worth the obedience and the obeisance of all people. That idea is, is scattered throughout the whole passage. Let's see that. Paul says in verse 19, here's how, how does he show that God is worth it? He says in verse 19 that, that, that God has revealed his, his invisible attributes. We can't see God, but he has revealed truth about him in creation. In creation, that's what he means in verse 19 by... Uh, no, in verse 20, by uh, in the things that have been made. And he specifies two things that God has made clear about himself. His eternal power, right? That's verse 20. His eternal power and his divine nature. Et- How do you see God's eternal power in creation and his divine nature? How do you see those two things about him when you look out at the sun, moon, and stars and the trees, right? How do you see that? How do you get to eternal power? Well, Paul says you can see his eternal power. It's not just power, it's eternal power. Because certainly power is is clear that he created the world at all. That he spoke and it happened. That's power. But it must be an eternal power to have existed before the world to bring the world and time and space into being. And, and, And the only person who is eternal like that is God, and so you also see his divine nature in it. And in verse 21, Paul argues that God is worthy of honor and thanks. He, he, honors that God is, he, he, he argues that God is worthy of that through the negative, saying that they did not honor him. They did not give thanks to him. But he's worthy of it. More on that in just a second. Verse 23, he talks about the immortal glory of God. Or more, more precisely, the glory of the immortal God. He's already mentioned the eternal power of God, and now he's talking about the immortal, eternal glory of God. In verse 25, Paul shows that God is worthy of being worshipped and served, not just because of who he is, but because of what he's done in being our creator. We worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. He's the creator who is blessed 
forever. Amen. And he sums it up in verse 28 by saying that basically we should all see fit to acknowledge him. And I'll say, well, let me just say that right now about, about this word acknowledge him. He says they did, not, they did not see fit to acknowledge him, meaning we should see fit to acknowledge him. That word acknowledge is an interesting word. Again, I think this is the last time I'm going to talk about Greek. So just, but it's, it's important to the point here. That word that's translated here, acknowledge. They did not see fit to acknowledge God. That word that we translated acknowledge right there is almost always used in the New Testament to, talk, to, talk, to describe testing something, examining something to prove its worth. Right? And so it talks about like testing precious metals. It, it'll use it to talk about t- examining and testing someone's character, their moral uprightness. And Paul is saying that after all that God has revealed about himself as creator, as Lord, his eternal power, his divine nature, his, immort- his immortal glory, all that God has revealed about himself that we see that and we deem it, we deem it worthy of our worship, of our, of our service to be honored, to be thanked, to be blessed. That's what he says. But, but that alone doesn't justify wrath being poured out. That God is worthy of all that cannot by itself justify wrath being poured out. Which is why Paul also in this passage demonstrates not only that God is worth glory and praise, uh, but that his wrath is owing to that plus the willful rejection of humanity, of his glory and worth. How does he do that? Well, first of all, he demonstrates the knowledge of his glory and worth. We know the truth. Every person knows. We know it. Paul says in verse 18 that we, by nature, apart from any grace of God, as we come into the world, Paul says we suppress the truth. We suppress it. Like we know it, but we hold it down and try to ignore it. Right? And how do we try to ignore it? He says in verse 18, it's by our unrighteousness, by our ungodliness. We occupy ourselves with other things. And the fact that those other things are ungodliness and unrighteousness, that does something to us. We'll see that in just a minute. But Paul says that God has made the truth about himself plain to every person. He says in verse 19 that God has made himself known plainly to everybody. In verse 20 he says it is what he, what he has shown us is clearly perceived clearly perceived in creation and it is for this reason he says in verse 20 we are without excuse and then he proceeds to say everything else on that presupposition that God has made himself known to us and we know him but we suppress it we suppress it in our own hearts through our own unrighteousness and rebellion so he says in verse 21 Although they knew God, although they knew God, I lied to you when I said that's the last thing I'm going to talk about Greek. Uh, Not intentionally, but again, the word order thing. 
word order doesn't matter as much. They can scrunch words together for emphasis. And there's another interesting thing going on when it says in English, they did not honor him as God. In Greek, it literally says, although they knew not God as God. Although they knew not God as God. We, refuse, we, we know God, but we refuse to acknowledge Him as God. We, we aren't willing to recognize Him as God over our lives. And then in verses 23 to 26, three times, three times, it says people exchange the truth about God for a lie. They exchange, they exchange what they know about God. They exchange the obedience that they owe to Him for other pleasures. So in verse 28, he says, sinners don't see fit to acknowledge God. They, we don't see fit to reckon him worthy of our obedience. We don't see fit to, to acknowledge that he is worth our praise, worth our obedience, worth our service. It's a conscious decision that we make, maybe not all at one time, but in a thousand little ways. And in verse 32, it says, even we know his holy will but we ignore it and don't deem it worthy of our obedience so all of this together god is just to pour out his wrath in this world uh, and we may have a certain preconception of what god's wrath being poured out we may have a certain preconception of what that is going to look like maybe when we hear the wrath of god being poured out the image that comes into our minds are the eternal fires of hell, right? But the way that Paul, and, and that is a reality, but that's not the only reality. Paul has a different picture of God's wrath in this passage. It looks very different than a fiery hell, but it is just as terrifying. The first way his wrath and judgment appears in this life against our sin, he's going to say, is the deceitfulness of our sin. The deceitfulness of our sins. We see this most clearly on the bookends of our passage. So early on in the passage, in verse 21, Paul says that by nature, even though we know God, we choose not to honor Him as God. We choose not to give thanks to Him. We suppress the truth we know. We go our own way in ungodliness and unrighteousness because we think that going our own way will be more pleasing. We think going our own way will be more satisfying. We think going our own way will be more rewarding. But what actually happens instead? He says in verse 21, they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Think about what that is saying. What does futile, what does futile mean? Futile means Pointless. It means pointless. Their thinking, literally it says the dialogues in their head, their reasoning processes became pointless. When they rejected God, when we reject God, and turn ourselves just to the things of this world, to the things that are of a lesser glory, and we, make them, we try to make them an ultimate glory, our thinking becomes pointless. Because we value the worthless. And we reject the supremely valuable. And it says our, our hearts are darkened. 
and foolish. We, we by nature, in our, in, 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 our, in our sinful nature, apart from the grace of God, by nature we love what will ultimately harm us. And we hate what could eternally save us. But if you look at the other end of this passage, look at what he says in verse 32, that even though we know what is right and wrong, even though we know God's righteous decree, we not only choose the wrong, we, we feel better about ourselves when other people come with us. We feel better. We, we, we give approval to those who practice them. What does that teach you? It teaches, it teaches you that sin's deception grows stronger in community. Sin's deception goes stronger in community. It's why last week when, we, when I gave you that whole list of different things that God saves us from, the, the, it saves us from the wrath of God, saves us from, the, from the, 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 the deception of our own sin. One of those, when Christ saves us, He saves us from a corrupt generation. Sin grows stronger in community, which in why, is why in real life sin deceives us so well that even though how we think is futile, even though how we think is foolish and darkened, somehow, according to verse 22, we still convince ourselves and really believe that we are wise. Even though claiming to be wise, they became fools. And deception grows in community. It's easier to convince ourselves that our rebellious way is actually wise when we're in a whole community that thinks the same thing. Proverbs 14, 12 says that there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is death. But man, it seems so right. That's how sin deceives us. Sin makes us so dumb that three times... Paul says we exchange the eternally good and the eternally valuable for that which is eternally worthless and dangerously foolish. In verse 23, he says we exchange the glory of God for whatever glory we think we find in creation. What does he say? We exchange the glory of the immortal God for images Resembling mortal man? What do you think pornography is? That's what it is. You're exchanging the beauty of the glory of the eternal God for an image of mortal man and worshiping it and serving it. Verse 25, Paul says more succinctly that we exchange the truth about God for a lie. And worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. It's simply this. We by nature worship creation. We, we by nature worship created things. I mean, millennia ago and still today, there are civilizations in the world that see the sun, moon, and stars and they worship the sun, moon, and stars. Instead of seeing through the sun, moon, and stars, the creator of them. We by nature worship creation. We by nature worship people. We by nature worship pleasure. 
We by nature worship popularity. We by nature worship power. We by nature worship possessions, money, success, comfort, on and on and on and on and on. Which shows up in the third exchange in verses 26 and 27. That sexual sin, sexual sin is in every generation a passion that we are consumed with. Because the, the very first idol we worship as ultimate is ourselves. And the sexual sin he highlights here is homosexuality, which this passage does. There are some, there are some even quote-unquote biblical scholars, liberal biblical scholars that will say, well, what Paul was really talking about here, the reason he's talking about homosexuality was that that, that, was, just a, that was just a thing of his time. That he, that's just a cultural, that's a first century cultural thing. We don't think that way anymore. Like, you can't pass what Paul says here off as that. Because you can't pass what he says about homosexuality here as just a, a, an, an unenlightened opinion of an ancient man. Because twice in this passage, Paul makes reference to the creator and the creation of the world. So Paul is saying here that homosexuality, and don't think he just talks about homosexuality. He does here. Homosexuality and elsewhere... All sexual sin, all sexual deviation is a violation of God's created order. But we see in our own day, we see in our own culture, how sexual sin of all sins becomes somehow how people see their very identity. People become like what they worship. But it's nothing more than worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Paul emphasizes how stupid it is with that comparison in verse 23 between immortal and mortal. Immortal God, mortal man. We forsake the immortal for that with an expiration date on it. Stupid. But it's worse than stupid. It is stupid, but it's worse than stupid because the wrath and judgment of God against this ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, unrepentant, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men is not just allowing us to suffer the deceitfulness of sin it's even worse than that because I don't know another way to describe the rest of what he says in this passage other than the devastation of our sin the devastation of our sin think about that with me quickly before we come to a close here in this point the devastation of our sin this is where we see the wrath of God against sin come to full fruition in this life. There is more wrath to come for the unrepentant after this life, but judgment comes early, and this is as full as it gets in this life because the scary counterpart, I told you there are three exchanges. They exchange the glory of the immortal God for mortal man images. They exchange the truth about God for a lie. They, there's three exchanges. Paul likewise here presents a threefold handing over to that sin. We, we choose to exchange three times. God three times hands us over. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up. Verse 28, God gave them why, why is that? It is God justly 
handing over fully to what a person has freely and rebelliously chosen. So in verse 24, God handed them over to impurity. In verse 26, God handed them over to dishonorable passions. Dishonorable passions. He handed them over to continue so that they would continue to commit sexual sin without reservation, like without any hesitation of their conscience. All God-given restraint is removed. And in verse 28, God handed them over to a debased mind. And look at the result there. Why did he hand them over to a debased mind? To do what ought not to be done. God gave them over to that. God gave them over to do what was actually against his own will. And this is not the only place we see that. Uh, You can just jot this reference down. But in Acts chapter 7, verses 41 and 42, this this is Stephen's speech before... The, the Jewish rulers, as right before he is stoned to death. And he, this is the reason why Acts 7 is a good chapter to memorize because he goes through the whole history of the Old Testament. And he's in the part of that speech where he's talking about that generation of Israelites that God brought out of slavery to Egypt. And here's what he says in Acts 7, 41 and 42. They made a calf in those days and they offered sacrifice to the idol and they were rejoicing in the works of their hands. That's what all all idolatry is. That's, that's, That's what all sin is, is rejoicing in the works of our hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. But here's, back to Romans. We need to be reminded again that this, this handing over, God gave them up, God gave them up, God gave them up, we need to be reminded that this is, this is the reactionary judgment. This is the reactionary judgment and wrath of God against our own persistent rebellion and sin of anybody outside of Christ. Because did you notice when we read it through the first time how every time it says that God gave them up for something, it was his reaction. It was his reaction to their already settled rebellion. So verse 20, look at the flow of, of thoughts. So in, in verse 23, they exchanged. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up. Verse 25, why did he give them up? Because they exchanged. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up. Verse 26 and 27, why did he give them For their reason, their women exchanged, and the men likewise. And so verse 28, since, since they did not see fit to acknowledge him, God gave them up. This is God sovereignly removing His hand of restraint to allow unrepentant sinners to grow even harder in their rebellion. To go even further down their own chosen way. That's scary. So Paul says this same thing, by the way. I'm going to ask you to hold your place here and turn over to chapter 4. I mean, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Not Romans. That'll be a good chapter when we get there. Ephesians 4, verses 17 to 19. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 17 to 19, we'll come right back to Romans after this, but we need to see something important here. Paul says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, 
that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now, stop, stop right there. It's Gentiles that he's talking about in Romans 1. He's talking about Gentiles, how the Gentiles walk. And I want you to notice how many words Paul uses here that also appear in Romans 1. Now, don't walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. All those are words that he used in Romans 1. Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance in them due to their hardness of heart. Now look at verse 19. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Notice that passage says in verse 19 that they have given themselves up to every kind of impurity. And we see, you can go back to Romans, we see that same process going on in Romans 1. Because if you look carefully, for example, at Romans 1.24, yes, Romans 1.24 says, therefore God gave them up, but He gave them up, look at verse 24, in the lusts of their hearts, in the cravings of their hearts. It was the path they already chose. It was the path they were already walking. They had already given themselves up, and God confirmed it. And as we start to wind this down, we need to note the path of God's judgment, how it, how it happens in, a, in, a sinner, in an unrepentant sinner's life. Follow me here. Notice in verse 23... Notice that word images. You see that word images in verse 23? They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Now notice in verse 25 that word lie. They exchanged exchange the truth about God for a lie. Images and a lie. Those are two words used in the Old Testament a lot to talk about idolatry. Idol, images are idols, and idols are lies. <laughs> Which is what all of this exchanging is about. Idolatry over true worship. Now, that being the case, notice the progression in these verses. In verse 25, Paul says, We worship and serve the idols in our life. Which means... And this is talking about anybody outside of Christ, anybody. I'm not talking about this as Christians. The same Sin works the same way in our own hearts. But what Paul's talking about here is believers outside of Christ, which is why he is not ashamed to preach the gospel to them, right? But still, he says people worship and serve. That's the language of verse 25. They worship and serve the idols in their lives. What does that mean, they worship and serve it? It means the idols, the things that we idolize our lives we give our time to it we give our attention to it we give our money to it we give our thought to it we give our 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 our, our effort to our idols in other words what we idolize we organize we organize our lives around them they become habitual realities in our lives most guys don't look at pornography once it's a habitual reality in their life they become habitual realities, habits that we give ourselves to a lot. And when, and when that happens, then what? 
What happens after that? Note in verse 26 the word passions. God gave them over to, to dishonorable passions. What does that mean? The more habitual those idols become, our hearts follow it. We begin to love our idols more because we're habitually giving ourselves and our time and our attention to them. We, and, then, and then, so no, habits move hearts. Habits move hearts in two directions. Sinful habits move, move hearts in a sinful direction. Godly habits move your heart in a godly direction. Habits move hearts. So when that happens, when, when the idol becomes a habitual reality in your, mind, in, in, your, in your life and your heart follows it, then what happens? Note the word in verse 28, mind. God gave them up to a debased mind. Which means when the idols are habits in our life and my passions and my heart have followed it, then I sinfully justify it in my mind. I sinfully justify in my mind what I love in my heart. My heart drives my head. We convince ourselves that there's nothing wrong with it. And sin grows stronger in community. And when, then what happens? What, what then happens in verses 29 and 30? We are filled with all manner of evil. That whole list of evil that then comes when, when we give our time and our habits to, to sin that, that, that has then captured our hearts and our minds, all restraint has been removed. And in that list in verses 29 and 30, there are 17 terms in those two verses to describe the proliferation of evil in our lives, even being inventors of evil, 17 terms. Right in the middle of that list is this one, haters of God. Haters of God unrepentant sin is devastating. We might read this and feel how terrible, how seriously terrible that it is and think that Paul is talking about some people out there. And now while he is true, he is talking to unbelievers. I think it would be to miss his point. He is talking mainly about Gentiles in chapter 1. And when we come to chapter 2, he's going to address Jews who are happy to talk about Gentiles being sinful. And he's going to show them they're sinful too, which is why he's going to conclude in chapter 3 that saying, this is all of us. This is what Christ came to save us from. We cannot appreciate the good news of the gospel, apart from an honest appraisal of the bad news. Bad news is not just out there. It's in my own heart. But the good news for a believer is we have the Holy Spirit within us. That we might be caught up in a sin. We might be caught up in, 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 a, in a sin that's becoming a habitual reality in our lives. But for a believer who has the Holy Spirit, when you have a brother or sister in Christ come to you and confront you with that waywardness, it may, be the, it may take the second or third time, but because you have the Holy Spirit within you, you resonate with that, and the Holy Spirit helps you not to justify it in your mind, but to come in repentance. That's the good news. That's the mark. 
if you are following Christ, when you know you have a sin in your life, and whether it's through something that I have said or a brother and sister in Christ who has come to you, and you know the sin in your life, do you suppress it? Do you suppress it? Do you hold it down? That's the mark of an unbeliever. Or do you confess it? That's the mark of a believer. May God grant us that grace. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for even the hard passages in your word. We need those. We need those. It is a, it is a, it is a, a wrong mirror. It's, a, it's an erroneous mirror that we're looking in if it never tells us, it never shows us what is actually going on in our hearts. Lord, I pray that, that this passage would make us all the more vigilant against sin in our own hearts. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Thank you, Lord, for, for the righteousness. Thank you for the, that in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed. The, to be received by faith. I pray that, that in standing in that righteousness with the help of the Holy Spirit, we would walk in purity, not in impurity. And I pray that you would make us all the more eager and not ashamed to share the gospel. Not only because we know that the gospel is the power of God and in it the righteousness of God is revealed, but because the world desperately needs Jesus. Help us be eager to share. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.